to episode 28 of Literary Disco, the Iowa Essays episode. On today's show, we will begin talking to Todd about the LA Times Book Fest, which he not only attended this past weekend, but moderated a panel and got to meet some of our listeners. Then we'll do a Words to Your Mother, a segment in which we each talk about a word we've recently looked up or been thinking about. And in the main section of our show, we will talk about two very different essays regarding the tragic shooting that occurred at Iowa University in 1991. Joanne Beard's The Fourth State of Matter, which appeared in The New Yorker in 97, and The Physics of Revenge by Jim Mann that appeared in the LA Times in 1992. Both essays are available online, and you can find links on our Facebook page. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Yes. Hello, guys. Hello there, sir. All right, so Todd, uh, you were at the LA Times Book Fest this past weekend. I was. I was at the LA Times Festival of Books. It was my... Uh... I believe it was the 15th time I've gone to the LA Times Festival of Books. 13 times as an author and two times as a person walking around getting autographs from people and acting like a complete idiot. Um, which is not so different from what I do when I'm there as an author as well. Um, but this time, I met perhaps the most interesting person I've ever met in my entire life at the LA Times Festival of Books. And his name was Larry Pistel. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> Julia's dad... Uh, unbeknownst to either Julia or myself, or Ryder for that matter, was apparently staying at a hotel across the street from the LA Times Festival of Books, which is held on the campus of USC, uh, attending an insurance conference, and saw apparently an, a giant gathering of dorks and figured, someone there will know my daughter. <laughs> Great. So true. Painfully true. And so he, uh, he showed up at uh, a panel that I moderated. I did a panel with uh, the writers Hector Tobar, Leila Lalami, and Nina Ravoyer on Sunday of the book festival called Unheard Stories, which I um, subtitled A Jew, a Guatemalan, a Moroccan, and a lesbian walk into a bar. Okay, um, great. And also... Four people with olive skin walk into a bar. Um, so he came to that one. And then I did a panel the previous day called Troublemakers, where I was a panelist. And I was on that with uh, Paul Tremblay, Jerry Stahl, and uh, James Greer, where we talked about basically being assholes. So that was right in my wheelhouse. Um, but it was also uh, the LA Times Book Prizes, which was Friday night. So I got to see Margaret Atwood speak. She won the Innovators Award. Ooh. So that was very cool. And it, it's a very strange experience because you're sitting there in the auditorium and you look out and it's like an entire Barnes & Noble has come alive. Every single author that you can conceive of is there because the LA Times Festival Books has like 500 authors that they invite out to do panels and talks and things like that. Wow. So everywhere you look, it's it's an author. So that was pretty cool. The the thing that I love about the LA Times Festival of Books, in addition to just all these great panels, so there's like there's like 150 panels that go on, but there's there's um, hundreds and hundreds of tents of people selling books. Um, authors have their own tents sometimes, and things like university writing programs, like I run, have a tent there, and comic book stores. It's just it's huge. It's a it's a massive undertaking. I think it's the biggest book festival in. Uh, and maybe it's in the world. If it's not the biggest, it's like the second or third biggest. It's it's huge. 150,000 people go to it. But That is so crazy. It's crazy. That's great. But the thing that is always so inspiring to me is to be there and you see all these people and you realize they are there for books. They are there for literature. And everywhere you look, there's people sitting under trees reading books or looking on their Kindles. It's really a great experience to go to just as a fan. 
But as an author, it really gives you that moment of, oh, what I do has some importance. Like this matters to a lot of people, 150,000 people in LA. And how you can tell it's really important is that on Sunday, it, or on Saturday, it was up against the Grilled Cheese Festival, which was downtown. And on <laughs> Sunday, it was up against this thing where they close off uh, almost 20 miles of streets in L.A. so people can walk and ride their bikes from downtown L.A. to the coast, basically. Um, and even with those two giant events, and I, I would have gone to the Grilled Cheese Festival, um, you still get 150,000 people there, which is so cool. The other cool thing, um, from my perspective, in addition to you know the green room, the green room is the best part, free food, and riders love free food. Um, my author escort on Sunday, huge literary disco fan, uh, her name was Priya. She was a little angry with me because apparently sometimes I'm on Twitter and she responds to things I'm saying, but I don't respond to her. And she wanted it known that she knows that I'm online at the same time and that, you know, Clearly, I'm checking to see who's responding, and I'm not responding to her. So, Priya, I see you, and I am responding to you now. Would you guys <laughs> mind if I read a brief excerpt from Larry Pastel's experience of the LA Times Book Festival? I would love to hear that. Please do. Uh, Priya also gets a mention here. Excellent. Okay. I'll just read the whole thing. It's, it's quite short. <laughs> I, I wrote to him, and I said, how's LA? Did you get to the Getty yet? Getty Museum, it's a great museum. Now, let's all remind ourselves that I had no idea that he was going to stock Todd. All right. <laughs> Dear Julia, I have not yet gotten to the Getty. Interesting wordplay. I plan to go Thursday. I might take the Chevy to the levee to get to the Getty. <laughs> da, da, da. <laughs> I enjoyed meeting Todd again, met him once at Bennington, and he said he is looking forward to the wedding a great deal. As on your literary disco radio podcast, Todd grabs an audience with his, parentheses, borderline crazy slash zany, <laughs> and parentheses, sense of humor and lots of cussing. Ooh, that, I, I, by the way, I've never heard my dad say that word. As moderator, he immediately dispelled any stuffed shirt atmosphere, and a very insightful 1.5-hour discussion followed with the four writers involved. Also met Priya, who knew you. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> also in my text to Greg, I believe this is writer's favorite part. I meant to say in my text, uh, so he's texting my other half, Greg. I meant to say in my text I greatly enjoyed the book signing, but it came out cool signing, and I did not have time to correct it. I am trying to avoid being a tech dinosaur, Julia. Very challenging, dot, dot, dot. All right, here's the final paragraph. This is basically his review of the festival. There were thousands of book lovers at the LA Times Festival, about 100,000, I believe. So this was very heartening for us book lovers. I spent most of the day at the book fair, including eating a horrible hippie slash veggie <laughs> noodle bowl. <laughs> well, how could a noodle bowl be hippie? Well, That's th- what there, was like, there was like 20 food trucks there, so uh, I suspect yeah, yeah, he went right. to a food truck. Not a fan. At this point, the sun was beating down, and I was more than ready for Todd's panel discussion. Also attended another called The Culture of Culture. A caramel praline gelato later restored my mojo. A happy day basking in a non-parallel universe. All my best wishes, love, Dad. Brilliant. Your dad is basically Anthony He's Bourdain. Hysterical. Oh my god! I just, it's so funny. Yeah, I mean, I, he means it so sincerely, and my dad obviously is awesome. It's just like a food slash book review. It's just oh man. The, the festival books is a great 
time. And uh, so if you if you guys haven't gone to the Festival of Books, those of you out there listening, next year when it happens, it's always the third week of, uh, of April. Um, you absolutely have to go. It's all free. The only thing that costs is to park. Um, and you can spend an entire day there and you can buy books or not, but you can, all, you can meet all these authors, which is always a cool thing. All right. And now let's talk about some words. Uh, words to your mother. Word is, uh, yes. So the word that I've been thinking about is, um, and the reason I've been thinking about this is because I, I, I went to Boston like three weeks ago uh, to be on the jury of a film festival. And then I, I'm, a, I'm on another jury for a short film festival out here in L.A., and so I've been watching lots and lots of movies. So I've been thinking about movie terms and ways to talk about or take notes on these films. And one of my favorite movie terms is the word diegetic mm. or diegesis. And I recommend not looking at the Wikipedia page for this word because <laughs> it is a rabbit hole that makes no sense. So let me explain what I, the, I had first learned this word when I made my first film. Um, and it's a great word to use in filmmaking, and it's mostly in relation to uh, sound. And it's the idea that, like, if somebody hits play on their stereo in a movie and you hear the song, that's diegetic sound. Hmm. But if it's if it's just the part of the soundtrack and the people are not aware of it, that's non-diegetic. So, like, huh. on The Wire, they never had music that wasn't playing in the exactly. scene. Exactly. So they had a rule that they would never play non-diegetic music. Hmm. So right. yeah, so there, there. But but then this relates to fiction, and that's what the Wikipedia page started getting into, which just really it hurt my head. But basically, <laughs> the idea is like there's different levels of diegesis, so you can use different terms like metadiegesis and hypodiegesis to describe the fact that like oh, there's a narrator. But then there's a story within the story. And then the, you know how like there's just multiple layers to the realities of a fictional creation, basically. Wow. Um, and yeah, it's, a, it's such a fun concept. And it actually becomes really helpful, especially when movies tend to, um, to play with this idea and to go in and out. So like, uh, you know, if, if, for instance, I think this happens in Tarantino's films a lot. Like there will be a song that is part of the soundtrack that then suddenly becomes, you realize, is the song playing on the car stereo or vice right. versa. You know, yes. like you hear somebody playing something in a car stereo and then it suddenly t it gets louder and, and takes over the whole movie for a montage or whatever. So it's moving from a non-diegetic song to a diegetic song or vice versa. Anyway, I just love this word and it actually is kind of helpful. And I want to keep exploring these different uses of it in fiction because I think... I think it, 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 to get this specific, um, I don't know, like like talking about Ron Curry's Junior's mm -hmm. book last week or last yeah. episode, I feel like there's different levels to that, you know, because there's the Ron Curry Jr. who wrote the book, there's the Ron Curry Jr. who's the narrator of that story, and then there's stories within that he's retelling that somebody told him. Right. So that would be like three different levels of diegesis. That, anyway, you are blowing word. my mind here. I yeah. love it. So, yeah. an example in 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 uh, Quentin Tarantino would that be like in the scene in Pulp Fiction where Uma Thurman hits the reel to reel and plays "Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon," and then it takes over the entire scene. Exactly. Oh, exactly. Interesting. Or another very popular example is um, in um, uh, "Dirty Dancing." Uh, when he's teaching her to dance, I've he puts on hungry had... eyes, and they do the like she's learning the steps. But then it becomes the montage of her like jumping into his arms in the lake and all that stuff. Another but example it... would be the song "She's Like the Wind" by Patrick Swayze, 
which to oh, me no, runs in a just... loop on my in my head, and then sometimes I just sing it. She's like well, the you know, wind. You know, a really good example is just musicals in general because oh. they're not aware that they're singing, right? Right. So, in the diegetic space of the film, they're not aware that they're oh, singing songs, right? It's like it's a cool <laughs> word to just help explain that 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 difference, yeah, that's, which that's... it is a very important difference, like titles mm-hmm. and and you know, there's always times that people play with this, like if you ever see like experimental short films where people like can see the titles of the movie, mm-hmm. or you know, obviously Charlie Coffin's movies have played with a lot of this kind of stuff, like adaptation is just a, a clusterfuck of diegesis <laughs> you know like what <laughs> yes. is real what isn't when is the writing when he can hear his own narration stranger than fiction did that too like these ideas are, i just love them and okay here's another great one because i've talked about this before and uh the rest of my life because i i read this awesome book that i'm sure i've referred to before about sound editing um and oh i have two things to say okay so number one is um uh, this book is called The Conversations, and it's really good, and blah, blah, blah. You should all go look it up. Um, <laughs> we'll put it in the notes. But, did you uh, already, you had already brought this up on the show? I think or? I did, yeah. It's, it's about how sound editing and editing a novel are very, very similar, mm, if not identical. Yeah. So I got really into sound editing real, real quick uh, when I read this book, but... <laughs> So movies like The Godfather, you don't even notice it because you're watching them. They have sounds often that have nothing to do with the scene. They're, they're not related to, like, an object hitting something. Like, in the scene in The Godfather where there's the gun hidden behind the toilet and you're like, is he going to get it? Is it really there? And it's a very tense scene. There's a sound of a train coming and they're obviously in a restaurant it has nothing to do with it but it just builds tension it's like completely Hmm. unrelated and our brains don't even register anything but the emotion the sound is creating so that's really interesting so look out for that kind of stuff but the the other thing is like Ryder when you're describing like the reverse experience of the montage of like you think it's you think they're not aware of it but then they are aware of it Mm -hmm. um you know who does that all the time is the Muppets no. Yeah, it's a it's like a big Muppet joke of like, oh, there's like this sweeping music, and then you'll turn and somebody's like holding a radio. You know what I mean? That's right. like a super Muppety form of comedy. Right. So, <laughs> and everyone's like, turn that off. Super, turn it. And like, super oh, Muppety. Muppety form of comedy. I love it. Uh, it's so good. That's a good oh phrase. Oh, God. That's better so than Muppets. Manic Pixie Dream Girl, in my opinion. Super Muppety. <laughs> Muppets are, are, they're always playing with the, the awareness of what they know and what they don't know, and it's a, right. it's a big basis of their job. And yet they're never aware that they're puppets. Right. That there's a hand mm. literally up their ass making them move. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they never wow, break that man. wall. <laughs> no, they don't, they don't break the old Buttheimen wall, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> wow. Uh, Did I say that? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, um... <laughs> Well, my world's sort of related, actually. So, uh, to Muppets. Oh, good. Thank God. <laughs> More Muppet talk. That's what literary disco always means. Uh, my word, it just popped into my head when Ryder said pick a word. And I just realized that it's its a name. It's not a word. But um, the word that I'm into today is Pygmalion. Oh, I yeah. love the classics. Love. And I by classics, I mean Greek and Latin. Um, and Pygmalion, I just think, is a, a beautiful-sounding word. It's a beautiful myth, and it is the basis for so much 
of our modern storytelling and mythology. You guys know. I don't know the Pygmalion <gasps> Oh, yes, story. you do. I mean, I know the name, but no, yes, I don't do. think I do. Okay, so Pygmalion is the story of... Oh, let's just read the definition, because I, I always think of it as a word separate from the myth. What, what's the Freddie Prince Jr. movie that's Pygmalion? She's all that. She's all okay. that. Uh, a king of... Here's Pygmalion. Here's the, here's the basic myth. A king of Cyprus fashions an ivory statue of a beautiful woman and loves it so deeply that um, to answer his prayer, Aphrodite brought her to life. And then um, and then he has to be... So he creates this thing and he changes her and he falls in love with her. So that's the basic... That's the very, very, very basic Pygmalion myth. But basically any story in which a man uh, tries to change... A woman into basically a godly form and falls in oh. love with that. That's like a Pygmalion the idealized story. woman. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So Pygmalion was a play, and then My Fair Lady uh, is a direct, direct interpretation of Pygmalion. Um, obviously, with the comedic musical various accent forms, <laughs> you know, thrown in. But that's all, it's all one story. And Pygmalion, I just feel like it's such a beautiful word to say. Pygmalion's also Pretty Woman, and there's a thousand takes on Pygmalion that are basically all the same movie. What do you got, Todd? I've got um, a word that, I mean, there's a quiz involved, basically. I'm going to ask you two what you think a word means. Julia Ryder, what do you believe the word nonplussed means? Uh-oh. Intelligence test. Unfazed. All right. Or, Unfazed. you know, not... Yeah, like nonplussed means you're calm and and something big happens and you're nonplussed about it. You don't you don't react. All right. I actually I think, I think that's not right. I think the non is misleading here. I think that it means like put off in some way. Uh, nonplussed actually means, and we use it in America for some reason. Whenever anyone says it, they are saying the wrong thing. Nonplussed means surprised and confused so much that they are unsure how to react. Somehow, oh, wow. it has morphed in our culture to mean the opposite. Right. Isn't that weird? Someone said that to me this weekend. They were like, you're always so nonplussed when these crazy people come up to you. And I and I was like, you know what? I, I know that I've heard that the definition of this is actually the opposite of what it is. And it's true. It is the opposite of what it is. It's so weird. But, and but I think it is how that... Does the definition it isn't the definition change then if everybody agrees that nonplus means... Oh, man. Yeah, we were just opening a can of worms. <laughs> that, that's that's what makes this word fascinating is that it, it's a uniquely American thing to have it mean what it means here. And everywhere else in the English-speaking world, so England and Australia primarily, I guess, it means what it's supposed to mean. And I think Julia's right. I think it has a lot to do with the non at the beginning of it, beginning of the word. But it's not like any of us ever say, oh, I was so plussed. If I may quote 10 things I hate about you. I know you can be overwhelmed and I know you can be underwhelmed, but can you ever be just whelmed? Mm. I I have a sick fascination with ten ways to ten dates to win a guy, whatever it's called. That's the Kate Hudson, Matthew McConaughey movie. That's, that's not what I'm talking oh. about. You're talking about how to lose a guy in ten. Oh, that is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about <laughs> ten things I hate about you, oh. which is a teen movie adaptation of The Taming of the Shrew. Everybody, welcome back to Literary Disco. 
Did you guys have a nice five-minute break while I got another seltzer? <laughs> we did. And, it, well, let's be fair. You got another seltzer and you peed. Okay. I, what people All need right. to know is that you're a human being just like I am. That's right. But not like Ryder is. Ryder's a different kind He's of human a being. He doesn't pee. Yeah. He just sweats. Peeing is beyond him. He just he just perspirates. He pees through sweat. He, he pees through his tears. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. All right. Okay, everyone. Well, we're about to have a really highbrow literary discussion. (laughs) Um, So here's what happened, everybody. I put on Facebook a few weeks ago, hey, we're looking for a single long form essay to read because we keep taking on these entire essay collections and it's just too much. So fan Maggie Downs recommended The Fourth State of Matter by Joanne Beard. Lots of people recommended stuff. Thank you, guys. Um, And I picked that one because I know that I like Joanne Beard uh, based on another book, The Boys of My Youth, uh, in which this essay is actually collected. So we are going to talk about it. But then once we read it and realized that it, since it's a personal essay, it covers a major event, which we'll get into in a minute, Todd recommended that we read another article or would you call would you guys call this article essay what would you call this i i think it's it's almost like it's narrative journalism basically yeah, it's like I a would true crime it an essay. Um, okay. yeah. report yeah it's still an essay Great. but there's no the author isn't involved right, right. it's not a personal okay. essay yeah um so another one printed in the la times called the physics of revenge by jim mann and it covers the exact same event but since it's not a personal essay it has a entirely different style perspective and theme really. and insight and, and and there's even there's there's strange things even that there's a character who not a character an actual person who in one essay is named one thing and then the another essay is named something different his name is turned around strangely it's very odd well maybe we should lay out what the event is first or what we're talking about sure Basically, yeah. in, the, in the University of Iowa in 1991, a physicist, he was a doctor, he had just gotten his PhD, named Lou Gang. It's either Lou, it's either Gang, Lou Gang or Gang Lu, depending upon which essay you read. Right. So this doctor, he was from China, he was a student from China who had emigrated to the United States to study at the University of Iowa, uh, shot and killed six of his colleagues um, and mentors at the University of Iowa. And Joanne Beard was working as an editor at the... Um, literary magazine? No, it wasn't the literary it's, magazine. It was the physics magazine. A, a so she was an editor for the science journal, and she was friends with a lot of the people who died. And she was not there, or she had been there that day, but had already left. So her personal essay actually covers the events eventually. It gets to it, but it's it, well, we'll talk about it. And then the other one appeared in the LA Times and is more sort of from an objective point of view about the killings and what happened and what went into it. After reading these two back to back, I kind of think they should be published together. Yes. <laughs> like I, th- I thought this was such an interesting combination of essays, but now having read the two, I feel like they can only exist side by side. So I highly recommend to our listeners to read both of them. Uh, uh, let's. Uh, I, I think let's do Joanne Beard first sure. because okay. Uh, I think this is an example of a a perfect essay to me. I, I remember reading it in the book. I remember feeling stunned by it, um, and the style of it is so simple and beautiful. Um, okay, so let's lay it out a little more clearly. Um, and now 
you have to imagine that you didn't know the entire background of what we just said. Okay, so take a second, imagine that, listeners. <laughs> We're back to the beginning. Oh my god, that was a really jarring time travel experience. <laughs> I, a lot of people don't know that time travel involves weird mouth sounds. Oh my god. True right, story. Um, so the essay really starts describing how her personal life is falling apart. Um, her dog is dying. She and her husband are separated, but he calls her like 50 times a day, leaving conflicting messages, emotional messages. Passive aggressive messages, yeah. I would call them. Most of the essay is about that. But when I came back and I read it a second time, um, there were unbelievably beautiful clues woven through the essay of what is going to happen. So she keeps, like, calling out of work or going in and being sent home and all this stuff because she's so depressed. And in right towards the beginning, she says she's being overdramatic. Uh, she's leaving her dogs, and she says, I'm leaving and I'm never coming back. And there's all of these fatalistic messages mm-hmm. woven in through the essay. And then eventually, of course, she is so depressed that her boss sends her home, and that is the afternoon in which he... And all of her other coworkers are executed. Mm. So she introduces some themes very early on. Uh, let me tell my version of reading this because I feel like it goes to your <laughs> point exactly, which is, so Julia sent me the link and said, read this. And for whatever reason, when I clicked on the link, it only loaded the first page of The New Yorker. And I hit print on that. So what I printed out was essentially the first page of this essay, thinking it was the whole essay. So I read this thing, and I have to say... As, as much as I thought that's a weird choice for us to be spending a lot of time talking about on literary disco, I was still impressed enough with the state of her life and the way that she describes it. The poetry of her language was so good that I thought, well, that's a nice, sweet, little slice of life, sad essay. To, to then uh, get the rest of the essay, once this was pointed out to me, uh, and read about this shooting, it just it just took the essay to a whole nother level. And I think you're absolutely right. I think that even if this weren't about the shooting, this is one of the best written essays I've ever read. Well, And I think the, the fascinating thing for me is, and I'd read this essay years ago, it's in a very good anthology that I have called the Touchstone Anthology of Contemporary Creative Nonfiction, which is edited by Lex Williford and Michael Martone who are the same editors of a, another book that I mentioned before, the Scribner Anthology of Contemporary Short Fiction. Um, but it's, it's in this book. And it starts out, so we should lay it out a little bit, it starts out basically, um, you think you're reading an essay about a woman who's going to have to right. put her dog to sleep. Mm-hmm. So she's got this dog that's very old and is clearly dying. It pees on itself every couple of hours. And if any of you, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of you have that are listening, have had a dog that you've had to put to sleep, there comes that point where you have to decide when to put your dog to sleep. And it's usually beyond the point at which you should have put your dog to sleep. Mm -hmm. But it's, for me, it was on page three when I realized, oh, there's going to be something larger in here. And it's a simple line. And she says, we are in this together, the dying game. Mm -hmm. And I realized, oh, God, something else is coming here. This is not just, Joanne Beard's too good of a writer to just be writing a dead dog story. Because, and this is this is an important rule for all the aspiring writers out there, we all get one dead dog story, and that's mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And then you realize that this is going to be a, a piece where you have parallels that will never be equal. And it's about this dying game. And I think it, it's absolutely, the construction of this essay is perfect. It, it's, it's, I've, never, perfect. I've never read anything that describes going through a trauma like this as well. Or the, the sense mm-hmm. of shock 
and the weird state of mind that accompanies shock. I've never read anything like this that that captures it. It's amazing. I mean, mm. anybody that's had a, a car accident or a loved one die or anything knows that weird, frantic state of forgetting and reality bending that happens in those moments. And man, this essay maintains that for like five pages. It just keeps you on this point. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's insane. Yeah, and so much of it is in, I mean, we definitely should point out a couple of uh, amazingly written parts because they're so, it's the writing. It's not, she's not describing the state that she's in. She almost never does that. It's no. the construction of her sentences as well as the construction of the entire essay that is evoking exactly what writer's saying. Like, to me, the most powerful line in the whole essay is, you know, the whole time she's, like, in denial of who's been injured or murdered or whatever. And right towards the end, so she's watching TV, and it says, the dead are, period. Mm -hmm. And then there's this obviously horrible pause because of the period and then a new paragraph and then it says Chris's picture. So it's so evocative the way that that sentence is written. The dead are full stop. Like that period is mm -hmm. the end of her. That's the end of that part of her life. And you can feel it in the grammar, which I absolutely, I'm in love with it. I think the, the, the fascinating thing that she also does is, um, she doesn't romanticize the people who are died. There's a guy in this essay who is killed named Bob who she ardently dislikes. Yeah. And she doesn't change her opinion of her dislike of him even though he's murdered by this this other guy, Gang Lu. That she that she also treats the killer in the sections where he's actually alive in the story without any sort of judgment necessarily on him at that point he is just what he is at those moments she describes him he's sick of physics and sick of the buffoons who practice it and when you read it you just think oh well that makes sense so there's a lot of people you work with that are sick of whatever it is they're doing but then she goes into this section where um you start to learn about gang lu gang lu no longer spends his evenings in the computer lab he now spends them at the firing range and all of a sudden the sense of horrible mm -hmm. menace starts to show up and you realize that she's been setting you up for it by talking about the trauma of the dying of her dog. Mm -hmm. Okay, the dog's about to die. Oh, you think you're sad now? We'll just right. you just wait one minute. <laughs> There's about to be a mass killing. I think we're about to head into the other essay, but um before we do that, I just want to make a a note like as an essayist and as a reader. I feel like all great essays have a turning point that is a basically a secret when you read them the first time that sort of name the theme of the essay and are applicable thematically to multiple things in it. And I think mm. there is a r extremely beautiful example of this in this essay. And it it's setting up the title of the essay, which is a big giveaway. But um, she's talking about physics and how she doesn't give a shit about it. Um, and she's talking about her friend, Chris. And they're also talking about whether or not she should put her dog to sleep. None of which, of course, is the actual event or theme of the essay, which is amazing. All right. Currently, he is obsessed with the dust in the plasma of Saturn's rings. Plasma is the fourth state of matter. You've got your solid, your liquid, your gas, and then your plasma. In outer space, there's the plasma sphere and the plasma pause. I avoid the math where I can and put a layperson's spin on these things. 
Plasma is blood, I told him. Exactly, he agreed, removing the comics page and handing it to me. Isn't it amazing? The entire essay is contained in that. And it's, but she presents it as physics is boring and this is this one-off conversation we're having while we're reading the comics. And when I went back and read this, having read it before and also having just read the uh, LA Times article, I was in, I felt shaken by that paragraph and how well it's connected to every single other word mm-hmm. in the essay tonally thematically yeah. everything i have to say i i've really loved a lot of great essays throughout my life for their intelligence or their insight or the things that they were arguing for or against this is probably the best essay just on the term on the level of writing craft it is wow i mean like if somebody wrote this as a fiction piece i would say you are you know one of the a great short story writer but the fact that she was able to live through such a tragedy and then find a way to write about it so effectively and emotionally i just i yeah this i now i've never read her stuff before so now i gotta go buy this book and read everything this book and and she's not she's not really prolific also she she does not put out a ton of work joanne beard but she's remarkable so the physics of revenge is a uh much more standard although still really really well done um true crime essay it is completely about gang lu and um, I'm going to note, I think the name confusion here is because of Chinese name construction. So Lu is probably his family name, and Gang is probably his given name. They reverse it in the two essays, so uh, it doesn't really matter. And, it might, and, that, and it might just be house style for the LA Times, something like that. It presents the basically the life story of this guy and presents very, very clearly um, a thesis on how and why he went wrong and did this and has a lot to say about the American dream. So uh, what did you guys make of, of this one? I, I kept thinking, okay, Joanne Beard is going to show up. <laughs> but then I realized the, the fascinating thing about this piece and about Joanne Beard's piece itself is that she was a witness to history but not a participant. So she's naturally not going to be in this essay. This essay talks also a lot about the people that were killed, specifically about the Bob, Bob and Chris who were killed. Um, Chris being Bob and Chris being Gang Lu's main professors. And what happened is that part of the impetus for the killing in his mind was that he was denied this uh, this twenty five hundred dollar teaching fellowship, basically, that the University of Iowa offered. And instead of it going to him, it went to his former roommate and chief rival, uh, who he ended up murdering as well. Um, and that, like, that's what set him off. But it's also very clear in the LA Times piece how much planning this guy had done. This wasn't just one day he thought, okay, they didn't give me this, uh, this fellowship. I'm going to go kill these people. It was like a year of planning, buying guns, doing target practice, and then methodically picking out exactly who he was going to kill. I think it is that piece, and it actually appeared in the LA Times Magazine, which no longer exists. And in the LA Times Magazine, they used to do a lot of long-form journalism like this. It's a pretty long piece. It's like 5,000 words. Um, But I I think it is an exhaustive and fascinating look at motivation. And it's the sort of thing we're all going to see for the next 15 years about the two guys who blew up uh, the bombs at the Boston Marathon also, where you're sourcing every side of a sociopath's life. 
I thought it was great reporting. I thought it was fascinating also to me that these people that we've come to really like in Joanne Beard's essay, specifically Chris, you find out there's another side to him. People thought he was really hard driving on his students and preferential and all this other stuff that mm -hmm. Joanne Beard doesn't talk about. Because, of course, they're just friends. And I thought that was a really interesting look at all the sides of something, not just the, the biased side of someone who knows them well. Absolutely. And I think there a lot of these parallel details, oh, God, were they interesting. So, uh, obviously, Joanne Beard is centering the fourth state of matter idea around the rings of Saturn, which she does not mention, but it turns up in the L.A. Times piece, is mm -hmm. the dissertation of the rival who is right. killed. So you can see that everyone thinks that his research is incredibly like sexy in that stupid academic way that people say it that I hate, but I'm now using it. Like it's cool ass <laughs> research. He's, you know, he's researching the rings of Saturn. What is more beautiful and symbolic and exciting, you know, than that where, whereas uh, gang Lu is researching thermodynamics or something. No one cares about Something it. unsexy that he got an A minus yeah. for. So the fact that even Joanne Beard is seeing and buying into this rival's research is very interesting to me. You know what I mean? It's like even she is won over by this other student. And not that he wouldn't deserve it, but you can feel the pull of the politics um, of the office in her essay once you read this yeah. one, which I mm -hmm. loved. Yeah, reading the physics yeah. of revenge, it, 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 it also... I mean, as much as he describes what they're, the different things that they were studying and, and, and the internal office politics, you realize that, that this guy was just a, a really spiteful, awful human being, you know, and that, that he was right. one of those people that kind of poisoned every relationship in his life. I mean, what I love about this essay, um, besides getting a better portrait of, of the person, the gang Lu, the killer, but also getting um, the way he brings in the economic questions and the cultural the cultural forces yes and he yes. the, the, the jim mann um his byline is described he's described as a, a chinese expert or he had, he had been writing articles about china essentially at the time so he's able to really bring in the facts about how many chinese people are emigrating what they're going through back in china what it's like to live in a rural part of china and to get this kind of physics uh, scholarship that he got to come to the U.S., how tough the competition is. And then he also is able to talk about the, the, the way that Gang Lu interpreted American culture and how that became gun-toting and Clint Eastwood and the movies that he decided to mm -hmm. watch. And I thought that was so brilliant. Um, there's a passage where Jim Mann talks about guns as, a, as an equalizing force in Gang Lu's mind and how being able to own a gun and be an American with a gun was a way to get back at, you know, a sense of, uh, of an authoritarian state or the sense of disempowerment. And when you're thinking about, uh, you know, Tiananmen Square and like, you can kind of get into the mentality of where, oh yes, being in America, the power that you would think if you were raised in China and you made it to America and you were the top of the top from China to be in America to study, you can see how somebody with a really spiteful, you know, sad, desperate existence would interpret the opportunities of American culture, the ability to buy a gun and the ability to make money and and turn turn those into oh, I should be making as much money as possible. How come I'm not making more money? Which is how he felt constantly. And then turn the 
turned. So well, we all feel. So you can see how you know <laughs> it, 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 in 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 a you know psychopath essentially that would become really awful mm-hmm. and it becomes something that murderous. And then with the gun thing, like oh yes, we have the right to own guns in America. Therefore, I should be able to use it to kill the people who I feel are conspiring against me. And, and you can just see he, he tracks these these cultural influences perfectly into to describing this mindset and how, you know, if you're a deranged person, those those cultural influences ca- could have been turned. I mean, it reminded me a lot of Dave Collins Columbine. Yeah. A lot. He was able to track influences that they had and how those turned ugly and how those turned wrong in the wrong hands, essentially. And I feel like this essay is even more ambitious in some ways because you're dealing with cross-cultural. You know, you're dealing with two completely different mm-hmm. countries at, like, their most divided time. But the gun thing, I think, is also interesting, Ryder, in the sense that... So this is an article that was written 21 years ago about a crime that happened 22 <laughs> yeah. years ago. And the arguments that are in there about registering guns and Still background so checks important. and all that sort of stuff on gun owners, it's the same argument that they were making for the, you know, the kid who shot up Newtown or the Aurora shooter or whatever. And it's the the same big questions of how is this man allowed to have a gun? And the, the simple fact was that how do you background you check a, a you guy from China? Yeah. You can't. As long as he's yeah. got his car, as long as he has a citizenship, he can buy a gun. It's crazy. And, and you know, there, there would be nothing in his background at the time to presume that he would be anyone that you wouldn't want to have a gun. He was a doctorate of physics at the University of Iowa, one of the top physics programs in the entire United States, why not give the guy a gun? Yeah. Well, m- maybe find out if he's harboring any ill will towards every single person he's ever met. That might be a, maybe a good question. I agree with you, Ryder. I think that the way that the cultural influences are woven in, I mean, a couple of times they were a little too direct for me, almost making a leap that I wasn't sure was there. But that was really rare. I mean, I think that having lived in China granted way after this, there were many times that my students would say things about the American dream that I found very shocking. I mean, I think we forget that the American dream is not one or the other of these things. It's not freedom or guns. It's freedom and guns. And Mm -hmm. that people can choose any or all parts of this. And money and greed and recognition are all built in to all of these things the idea of pulling yourself up pulling yourself up by your bootstraps so that you can be rich maybe you're just motivated by being rich you know maybe you don't love the idea of starting poor or never getting there or whatever so it's very very well done the way that it's pulled into this essay i think the interesting thing also is that freedom does not mean the freedom to to kill people um, you know, his his perversion of the American dream, of course, is the perversion of any sociopath's idea right. of the American dream. It's this idea that he is he is writing wrongs. Um, that is the Clint Eastwood, Dirty Harry ideal that he got from the West, from Western movies and Western television, Western fiction, all that stuff that. You know, that lone wolf who is the the one voice of reason in a world that's gone chaotic. Well, if you're a sociopath and you think you're that one voice, what ends up happening is you kill all the people that are just normal. So we have an article here about the criminal, and we have an article about the witness, really. I mean, do Mm -hmm. you guys, how do you guys feel about that? I feel like we give so much attention to the criminals and the mass murderers and et cetera, et cetera. And 
so many events uh, in the past few years have given so much focus to these awful people. <laughs> I feel like the Joanne um, Beard essay gives a real a lot a great portrait of Christoph Gertz, her friend, and. I mean, it's not even really about him so much, but you get a sense of his humanity and his loss mm -hmm. is so important to her, especially because he's the only, well, not the only, there's a couple positive points uh, in her life, but he's, he's sort of her life raft at this really depressing time in her life. And, and you just get the sense from that, you get a sense of his loss, I guess, and the loss of, of an individual who meant so much. And even though she didn't like Bob, the other guy in the office, for instance, you still walk away from that essay with a real sense of the human devastation. I think we have a natural inclination to ask why, you know, yeah. and mm -hmm. sometimes there is no why, right. you know, sometimes it's just a crazy person. But that doesn't make sense to us. Yeah, well, we have the, to narrativeize not be, it, right? We have to right. find a story we somewhere around here. And that's why this, you know, they're, these are, that's what's great about reading these two essays is they're two different types of story creation. And I think they go hand in hand so well. They should be taught in essay writing classes together mm -hmm. because it's like both of them are really, really good. And I, I appreciate both of them com for completely different reasons. In fact, if, if I teach a nonfiction class, if I assign myself a nonfiction class, I will teach these back to back yeah. just to see sort of how the students react to because I think it's a fascinating look at different angles. Yeah. The the other thing I have to tell you guys both is reading both these things is as a professor, it absolutely scared the shit out yeah. of me. Yeah. Well there's a real it dark absolutely side to academic scared life here. The shit out of me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The thing about academia also that I think both of these um, pieces play on is you know, it's like Kissinger said, the the you know the the politics are so high because the stakes are so low. Um, but that there's this closed ecosystem where the slightest uh, disrespect turns into this mountain of anger and, and recrimination, right. all these things. And that fulminates, I think, in, in campuses um, because these people are constantly climbing the same ladder that you're climbing on, whether you're a student or a professor in a, in a situation like these folks who were PhDs in science and the the students and the professors are sharing in the research, for instance. It's it's such a strange, heightened, bizarre world. Um, and that, that really, really freaked me out. <laughs> um, I remember reading the Joanne Beard essay, you know, when I first got this book, which was a couple years ago, and then reading it again the other night and just thinking, man, I, I've got to be super nice to all of my students forever. <laughs> for, well, that's forever. a good lesson to go away with I think I we can't know you know like obviously to a certain degree these things are unpreventable so hedge your bets <laughs> be nice Have don't be an compassion. asshole yeah I think maybe a good note to end on is one thing that's really fascinating about these two pieces is obviously the first one Joanne Beards is about uh plasma and the rings of Saturn uh but the the second essay ends on another scientific yes. idea, a completely different one. Um, he says, I, this is a quote from the suicide letter. I'm being a physicist who believes in the conservation of matter, energy, momentum, etc. Although my flesh blood made body seems dead. My spiritual soul remains perpetual and I am being quantum leaping to another corner of our world. Yeah. So I love the fact that each of these essays takes a different scientific idea and fits them into the concept of 
this man's death. For for writers, man, if you want to see great personal essay writing and great narrative journalism, these two essays back to back, um, it's like a master class in both of it. Totally. And if you want to see how many choices you have mm -hmm. as a writer. Right when you're deciding to write about one thing. I mean, that's the major lesson from this, right? Is yeah. that this is an identical event and you can write wildly different pieces about yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, guys. Well, thanks, Maggie Downs, for suggesting this thanks, essay. Maggie. Yeah. Everybody go out. Be nice. Everyone. Don't be an asshole. Hold on, I just want to add one real quick thing, which is oh, okay. this the, the, the Joanne Beard essay really brought home to me the power of literature and the power of being able to write well because you never know when something's going to happen to you in your life and the ability to communicate that to other human beings is such a gift and the fact that she was able mm -hmm. to turn what must have been the worst tragedy in her life into something that we can share in and think about and talk about and enjoy in you know i'm saying that word in the the sense that we're we're empathic and we're drawn into this experience uh it's just so cool and it like just goes to show that like learning how to write well and express yourself and communicate that is it's necessary in life you know it's mm -hmm. like it's how we continue and mm -hmm. i i just i don't know it was one of those moments where it's like wow i am really glad that she survived and that she also was such a good enough writer to be able to draw me into this experience. Yeah, because I agree. There were really only, what, 10 people that worked in this office or whatever that survived. Right. So the fact that one of them is one of the greatest essayists I've ever read. <laughs> of our right, time. is pretty remarkable, <laughs> that you know. But yeah. I just, in yeah. general, the ability to, to go through something, I and mean, I think about this with Tim O'Brien coming through Vietnam and Oliver Stone as a filmmaker coming through Vietnam. And, you know, these people that survive these kinds of experiences that also have the talent, it just goes to show how the arts are so important no matter what where life takes you. Anyway. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. All right, everyone, if you want to read it, uh, both essays are going to be up on our Facebook page, uh, the Joanne Beard essay and the LA Times essay. You can, you can catch them both there. And we'll also we'll link to them on our Twitter machine as well. And that'll do it for this episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we discuss a book that you've all been begging us to read, The Fault in Our Stars by John Green. Follow us on Twitter at Literary Disco and like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash literary disco. Thanks for listening. Magnolia.